Hello, and welcome to another edition of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. This is Herb Stroh from McCormick Barstow LLP. I'm past chair of the Trust and Estate section of the California Lawyers Association, which is also known as Texcom, and serve as the Trust and Estate section's representative on the CLA board. Today, I'll be your host for today's episode, which is being recorded on location at the 2019 California Lawyers Association annual meeting in beautiful Monterey, California. Joining me today, I have Howard Kipnis, Kieran O'Sullivan, and Mary DeLeo. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Herb. Thanks, Thank Herb. you. Before we get to our topic, tell me a little bit more about yourself, what you do, where you work. Howard, I'll start with you. Uh, thanks, Herb. I'm uh, uh, an attorney at a law firm, uh, Artiano Shinoff in San Diego, and I have, for the last 35 years, uh, specialized in uh, representing clients in connection with disputes involving the distribution and administration of trusts and estates. Great. Uh, Kieran. Thanks, Herb. Uh, well, I've got a solo practice in San Francisco for 21 years. I've been almost exclusively litigating trusts and estates disputes and uh, disputes concerning the transfer of wealth on death. Okay. And Mary. I'm an attorney at Weintraub Tobin in Sacramento, and I do trust and estate litigation, conservatorships, fiduciary representation, and some estate planning as well. Okay. Thanks for joining me. Today we'll be covering two topics, uh, the Barefoot versus Jennings case that's now before the California Supreme Court, and we'll have an update on the activities of the Trust and Estate section of the California Lawyers Association. First, let's take on the case of Barefoot. The appellate decision came down while I was chair of Texcom and generated a host of emails, calls, a lot of discussion urging that the executive committee uh, get involved in the case. The California Supreme Court granted review and Texcom ultimately filed an amicus brief on behalf of CLA. I'll note that that's the first amicus brief that CLA has ever filed, and the first one for the trust and estate section in probably some 20 years. So Howard, I, I wanna start with you. Uh, there's been a great deal of discussion, as I said, about this case uh, among estate practitioners. Tell us, what's all the excitement about here? So thank you, Herb. Uh, since uh, the trust law became part of the probate code in the early 19, uh, 1990s, uh, most trust litigators uh, believe that the probate code provided them with a full arsenal of weapons for contesting trust instruments. That is, contestants uh, who claim no beneficial interest in a trust could either set aside the entire trust or set aside transfers or assets, transfers of assets into that trust externally through asserting title and conveyance claims under probate code 850. While contestants who wished to establish a beneficial interest in the trust or uh, wished to claim a greater share of the trust as a beneficiary could pursue their contests internally uh, by asserting rights as a trust beneficiary under probate code 17200. But then came the Barefoot case. Barefoot undermined this paradigm when it held that only a person named in the last iteration of the trust as a trust beneficiary or as a trustee could invoke the court's jurisdiction under probate code 17200. Now, the practical effect of that is that a contestant who wished to challenge a trust instrument that had the effect of completely disinheriting him or her 
uh, lacked a remedy under the probate code and uh, has instead been forced now to pursue his remedy in the civil court. So if Barefoot stands, all would-be beneficiaries would not be able to pursue uh, trust contest in probate court, even if they could establish a beneficial interest in the trust. Okay. For our listeners that may not be familiar with the facts, can you give us a brief summary? Sure. In 1996, uh, Mrs. Maynard, who was a a widow with six children, created a single settler trust. Uh, Now, from 1996 to her death in 2006, she amended or restated the trust 24 times. In the last eight amendments or restatements executed between August of 2013 and the time of her death, Mrs. Maynard completely disinherited one of her daughters, the petitioner Joan Barefoot. Uh, She also revoked the nomination of Mrs. Barefoot as the successor trustee or co-trustee of the trust. After Mrs. Maynard's death, Ms. Barefoot filed a trust contest petition under 17200, challenging the validity of the last eight amendments or restatements that had the effect of disinheriting her on traditional contest grounds. That is, uh, she alleged all were invalid either uh, based on lack of capacity, undue influence, or fraud. The respondent trustee, who happened to be petitioner's uh, sister, moved to dismiss the trust contest petition under probate code 17202, which empowers a court to dismiss a 17200 petition filed by those who are not entitled to pursue it. Now, Ms. Barefoot responded opposing the motion on the basis that she was, in fact, a beneficiary because she had alleged that all of the challenged amendments that disinherited her were invalid. The trial court, the probate court, dismissed the petition, finding that Ms. Barefoot lacked standing because she was not a beneficiary under the most recent iteration of the trust. And in the uh, Court of Appeal ruling, the court affirmed uh, the ruling of the probate court. It held that as a matter of statutory interpretation, that is, probate code 17200, which authorizes only trustees and trust beneficiaries to file petitions concerning either the internal affairs of the trust or to determine the existence of a trust, that that probate code provision is only available to those who are named as beneficiaries in the last iteration of the trust and not to those who may nonetheless be able to prove that in fact they are trust beneficiaries by invalidating challenge trust amendments that resulted in their disinheritance. Okay, thanks. Karen, now you were part of Texcon's amicus committee and reviewed both the appellant and the respondent briefs. What are some of the key arguments that the appellants made to the Supreme Court? The petition, or let's call her um, uh, Ms. Barefoot, she argues that Probate courts are courts of general jurisdiction, which they are since the uh, early 1970s by specific statutory enactment, and that uh, the law states that probate courts can adjudicate all matters pendant or ancillary to any probate issues that are raised. And they're basically arguing an efficiency argument that why would we litigate one kind of trust proceeding in a civil court and another 
in a probate court. And this is highlighted, the, the um, dichotomy there is really brought into focus by the facts of this case, because Ms. Barefoot's brother was disinherited a little bit by some of the amendments. He continues to have standing. Ms. Barefoot is completely eliminated. She does not have standing, and she must go to civil court, according to the Court of Appeals. So we're going to have parallel tracks, and that's, uh, I think, most, the petitioner argues that that's against the thrust of giving, making a probate court a court of general jurisdiction, because so often probate uh, cases invoke uh, real property claims and other things that are would traditionally have been considered civil. So the public policy favors hearing them all in the same uh, proceeding. The other big point that's being raised by uh, Ms. Barefoot, of course, is that her allegations should have been assumed to be true at the pleading stage. And that is something that Texcom agreed with, that uh, no challenge to her standing should have been uh, adjudicated prior to uh, litigation of the, the merits of the claim. What was implicit in her allegations that she was a beneficiary was that if she proved that the amendments disinheriting her were the product of undue influence or lack of capacity, then she would be a beneficiary. And effectively, um, the court threw her out too soon. One other point that he, Ms. Barefoot makes is that 17200, by its plain language, doesn't actually specifically limit it only to trustees and beneficiaries. This might seem like a minor point, but you know I've seen opinions turn on things like this before. It says trustees and beneficiaries may uh, petition under this uh, section, but it doesn't say only trustees and beneficiaries. By contrast, respondent, of course, is, uh, as any respondent in this position, uh, that's, um, that's Ms. Jennings, is relying on the plain language of the statute. That favors her, or so they think. They think it says uh, beneficiaries and trustees only, that that necessarily means current beneficiaries and trustees. And so they're uh, relying heavily on that. The other major point made by respondent, and this is something that I think su surprised most uh, observers, was that they argued that probate code section 850 and that statutory scheme is the proper vehicle for bringing trust contests. That surprised those of us on Texcom. I think it surprised most practitioners. Uh, that's a very um, well-utilized section of the probate code, uh, but we see it as being specifically for disputes over uh, the transfer of property, whether, uh, you know, if a trustee claims the property should be in a trust and it's outside the trust, that section applies. Another person might claim that a trustee or an executor is wrongfully holding property that should belong somewhere else. It's a streamlined procedure for adjudicating those claims, but none of us uh, have had hitherto thought that applied to adjudicating trust contests themselves. Those are the essential um, arguments on appeal. Okay. Howard, you worked on that amicus brief that Texcom filed. How did Texcom respond, how did their brief respond to the 17200 and the 850 petitions? So, so with respect to the, to the argument regarding 17200, uh, we, we looked very carefully and how the court dealt with, how, how courts in general dealt with standing challenges in other cases. Uh, we looked both at uh, standing challenges generally, uh, but in particular, we looked at how courts in will contest cases handled uh, standing challenges because we believed, and in fact, uh, there is authority that supports this conclusion, that will contest cases are the type of proceeding most similar to trust contest cases. So we noted that when we looked at those sta uh, standing 
cases, uniformly, courts facing standing challenges at the pleading stage would apply a demur-type procedure uh, so that if accepting all of the allegations uh, in the petition or the complaint bearing on the claimants or petitioners uh, standing uh, as true, uh, the standing of the claimant could be established, then unlike the barefoot court, a court would not dismiss the petition at the pleading stage, but would rather set the issue of contestants standing for an evidentiary hearing uh, before the court could dismiss the petition. Okay. And then what was our response on uh, the 850? Uh, on the 850 petition, we looked uh, very carefully at the uh, statutory interpretation. And in fact, we looked at, uh, Herb, since you uh, were part of Texcom and helped uh, the legislature in, in drafting the amendments to 850, uh, we looked at the origin of those uh, amendments and we could see no support for the respondent's argument that uh, 850 would apply uh, to claims asserted by beneficiaries where uh, as a result of the claim, if successful, there were no transfers uh, or conveyances of title of assets. Okay, Ed, I know one of the arguments respondents made is that there'd be chaos. Uh, how, did, how did the brief respond to that issue? So Texcom also addressed uh, the respondent trustee's argument that uh, allowing the contestant who had not yet established a beneficial interest in the trust to bring a 17200 petition would result in disruption or, or, quote, chaos, unquote, by allowing the contestant to, quote, meddle, unquote, in the uh, internal affairs or the administration of the trust. But we pointed out that the statutory scheme that's at issue, 17200, uh, and the statutes that uh, govern that procedure, and in particular, Probate Code 17206, gave the probate court in 17200 proceedings full power to regulate the proceeding by staying or limiting uh, certain claims uh, or requested relief while the contestant proceeds to establish his or her uh, standing as a beneficiary. Okay, and if the Supreme Court affirms the decision, a beneficiary that's disinherited, where do they go? The Court of Appeals decision was was fairly vague, but they intimated strongly that a civil action alleging the same claims would be proper. So, uh, as Kieran mentioned, uh, if a beneficiary's uh, interest was diminished by an amendment such that, uh, as a result of an amendment, uh, he or she only received the spoon or the contents of a cupboard, uh, that beneficiary would have standing to bring a trust contest petition challenging that amendment, while someone such as Mrs. Barefoot, who was completely disinherited, would have no choice but to go to civil court to challenge the very same amendment. So you have two tracks going on at the same time seeking the same relief. Well, I can see why trust litigators would be pretty upset about this case and why it's generated so much interest. Last question, where's the case procedurally? When do we expect a decision? So the uh, case is now fully briefed. Supreme Court has sent out its uh, standard letter requesting uh, lockout dates for oral argument, and we expect uh, uh, the court to set a hearing date uh, for oral argument sometime in the first quarter of 2020. Okay. Well, thanks, Howard Kieran. For those who want to dig deeper into the issues, the next edition of the Trust and Estates Quarterly will include a reprint of Texcom's amicus brief that we filed in the Supreme Court. 
And I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the trust and estate section of CLA. To get into that topic, I'll go to my last guest, Mary DeLeo. Mary, can you talk a little bit about the activities of Texcom? Sure. We are a very busy committee. Um, some of our activities center around legislation. Every year, we monitor every single bill that comes out of the California legislature to see if it's going to impact trust and estates. And when we find a bill that does, we do a deep dive into it to make sure that it's not going to cause unintended consequences and make sure there's no ambiguities that could result in confusion once the law is passed. Once we identify any issues with the bill, we work with the bill's author to try to get those issues resolved. In addition to monitoring legislation, we also draft affirmative legislative proposals and get them placed with a legislature who could then introduce them into the legislature and hopefully we'll get them passed. This year we actually had two bills passed that originated down at the Texcom level. One was AB 328, which extended the presumption of undue influence to caregivers who marry their dependent adult. And we also got AB 327 in place and that law eliminates the undue influence presumption when there is a gift between spouses at death that uh, Lentz B. Lentz had imposed. So we are very busy in the legislation area. In addition to legislation, we do a lot in education. We have live programs. We've got several programs here at the annual conference. We do webinars. We do MCLE tests that are available online to our members. We also publish an ethics guide, which is particular to trust and estates. So all those ethic rules that are primarily, well, cover us all, but have special effects to our areas, they're in the ethics guide. And of course, that's being updated because of the change in the rules for professional responsibility. We do case alerts. Every time a new case comes out, our volunteer team writes up a case brief. We email it out to all of our members. We also do email blasts to our members to keep them updated on things that are going on with the section. Okay. Uh, regarding education, what kind of program do we have coming up? We have several coming up. First of all, at the end of this month on October 25th, we have our 43rd annual fall program, and that's going to be down in Loma Linda. And that will have a lot of the same presentations that are being given up here at the annual meeting. They will be given down in Loma Linda. That way, our Southern California members will have access to the programs. After that, in March, we are planning an elder abuse symposium in Sacramento, and we expect to bring together practitioners as well as members of the FAST team, the Adult Protective Services, the DA's office, so that we can put on a presentation that discusses how to combat financial elder abuse from all angles. Then we will have a program on June 5th in Southern California. It'll be a trust and estates program. We're looking at one for the summer, and then we'll be back at an annual meeting in September in San Diego. We're also doing monthly webinars. We have one coming up in November. Uh, that is Jim Lamping, or James Lamping. He'll be doing a webinar on November 20th regarding marital property ca characterization in the present landscape. Then on December 16th, Daniel Kim will be giving a webinar on how to get rid of a dead body, which is not what it sounds like, <laughs> but it's all about the rules and regulations that deal with post-mortem requirements as far as how to dispose of ashes, funeral arrangements, who can you bar from the funeral if you want to, all the, the technicalities that our clients are looking for, for answers for. 
And finally, in January, we'll have Peter Stern giving a webinar on medical eligibility and recovery. Finally, our quarterly, our Trust and Estates quarterly that you mentioned, that is our annual or our publication that comes out four times a year. We've got several interesting articles coming up, including an article about electronic wills. That is a bill that was introduced last year. It has not passed, but there's a lot of talk. Electronic wills are coming to California, and this article will update all of our members on where it's going with that. Yeah. So if someone wants to become a member of the Trust and Estates section, uh, what do they do? It's really easy. First of all, you could, once you get your BARD's due statement, just sign up as a member on that. It's $95. You can just sign up uh, on that form. Alternatively, you can just go to the CLA website and sign up there. Uh, last question. What do you see coming for the Trust and Estates section in 2020? 2020 is going to be a very busy year. First of all, it's the second year of a two-year legislative cycle, which means all bills that have introduced have to be enacted by the end of the year or they're automatically dead, which means the legislature is going to be very busy, so we're going to be very busy monitoring all that legislation. Second, we intend to extend our educational offerings. It used to be that we would do one article from the quarterly as a C MCLE article. Our goal is to do them all as MCLE articles. We want to give our members as broad a library as possible to make sure that they know what's going on and that they have low-cost MCLE available to them. Okay, thanks. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our time for this episode. I want to thank Howard Kipnis, Kieran O'Sullivan, and Mary DeLeo for joining us today. Thank you, Thank Herb. you, Herb. Thank you, Herb. If our listeners have questions or wish to follow up, how can they reach you? And I'll start with you, uh, Howard. You can reach me on uh, uh, Artiano Shinoff, uh, phone number 619-232-3122. Kieran. Uh, I'm at the law office of Kieran O'Sullivan. Uh, phone number is area code 415-391-3711. Mary. And I'm at Weintraub Tobin at 916-558-6000. And you can reach me, Herb Stroh, at McCormick Barstow, 805-541-2800. And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you obtain your podcasting. I'm Herb Stroh. Until next time, thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.